Ladies and gentlemen, you're very welcome along to another edition of Folklore Fragments, the podcast from the National Folklore Collection here in University College Dublin, where myself, Johnny Doolan, and myself, Claire Doolan, shall act as your obliging hosts for the next hour or so, uh, discussing aspects of our traditional cultural inheritance with a mixture of archival recordings, old books, and manuscripts here in the collection, and the odd lie, thrown into for good measure. Never, Johnny, never. Plenty of lies. No fake news here. Uh, Tissue lies, the whole thing. Now, in our previous instalment, we explored the look of the house and the symbolic aspects of our traditional architecture in general. But in today's instalment, we shall gather up our sides and sickles, leave our humble abodes behind and travel out into the fields in order to discuss the harvest in Irish tradition. So in the course of today's discussion, we'll look at hilltop dances, contests of athletics and strength, and will be suitably scandalised by naked horse rides through lakes and into the sea, before looking at the idea of the spirit of the corn, or of the crops more generally, and specifically at the last sheaf or bundle of corn cut from the harvest and how this is symbolised, which is an item that was held some symbolic value, value for our forebears in Ireland and further afield across much of Europe. So for many of us nowadays, was the, the summer, the height of the summer is a time of holidays and lounging about in good weather and so on. But strangely, the period that marked just prior to the advent or the arrival of the harvest, it was known as Hungry July, mm. where the year's crops were at their lowest. Um, and I suppose the day that we'll, that we'll, suppose we'll, we'll start to look at would be the 1st of August, which is Lammas or Lunasa, one of the mm. quarter days in Irish tradition and some of the celebrations around that. But the idea, I suppose, that, that just before that, there was this period of hardship where people had next to nothing left in their stores, basically. From the previous harvest. From the previous true. harvest, yeah. And that um, there's, a, there's a quote... I was reading from the, here from the Dublin University magazine, published in 1841, which I thought was kind of humorous in, in, in a bad way. Uh, it says, Monday, this is from, from Letters from the Coast of County Clare, and uh, the author describes uh, a fine summer's day. They say, a stranger travelling through Ireland in the summer season is often surprised at the plea put forward to excite his compassion and obtain alms, when perhaps on a lovely afternoon, when the sun shines bright, the air is balmy, and all creation revels in enjoyment and plenty, a group of beggars comes up to his carriage with, Ah, then, Your Honour, won't you feel for us this hard summer's day? Won't you give us something this hard, cruel summer's day? A lovely, horrible summer's day. Isn't it that was really July. such a contrast? Yeah, strange. Yeah, you wouldn't have particularly uh, thought about it. But, but the, the last Sunday in July typically was the day that marked the arrival of the harvest in Irish tradition. And that was a day that was met with kind of enormous celebrations. Although the festival itself of, of Lunasa occurs on the 1st of August, mm. but the date was generally moved... I suppose, uh, kind of in accordance with its movement to kind of Christian tradition, that it became the last Sunday in, in July, mm. and that was Garland Sunday. And that was a period of great celebration, revelry, uh, and enjoyment, as we'll see from different kind of different instances around the country. And it's quite a practical thing from what we've been reading, isn't it? To celebrate on a Sunday as opposed to sacrificing a working day. Yes, that's a good point, actually. The day when everyone's free, free, free of the, I suppose, the obligations and responsibilities of work. And especially um, with... The, kind of the labour-intensive nature of the harvest. Yeah. You're going to need all boots on the ground. The, yeah, the, all, everything that was about to begin. Mm. Um, and there was the, plenty of, there, there were loads of different names as well. For Garland Sunday, Big Sunday, Rock Sunday, Height Sunday, Mountain Sunday, Frotten Sunday. Frottenberry is another part of Garland Sunday celebrations and observations. Um, Again, with that kind of um, theme of abundance of not just the crops, but the fruits and you name it. Yeah, that was the kind of, the, the, this is when new potatoes were dug as well. It's mm-hmm. like the, the kind of, as we call the title of today's podcast, The Threshold of Abundance. This is where kind of, I suppose, people's stores would, would return back in. Um, and there were 
they're celebrating basically the country over. Um, and in terms of the names, the wonderful book actually, which we'd recommend that if, if even if you can't buy it because it's it's a witty tome, um, it's it the Festival that. of Lunacy by Mai McNeil, who was um, not one of our colleagues but one of our predecessors here who worked with the Irish Folklore Commission, and she was given her doctorate for it, wasn't she? Mm-hmm. It's, it's an amazing book, it really is. Yeah. It's huge. It's six, nearly 700 pages of everything you could possibly wonder about the Festival of Lunacy, mm. customs, traditions, linking it to um, customs and antiquity. And she really cleverly tries to analyse the survivals of the Festival of Lunacy as they would have known it in the 30s and 40s. And that has kind of survived into our period to see what's actually authentic mm. with the ancient festival. So for archaeologists, for historians, for folklorists, it's really valuable even just to dip in and out of it. Even as, Actually, it's worth explaining, I suppose, the idea of like lunacy as a quarter day. Again, a day that yes. marks, we talked about May Day folklore as a kind of another one of the quarter day traditions where these are kind of access points, hinges upon which the year turns. So Lunasa brings in the harvest season. It, it, it ushers in the, the, at the beginning of a new season and then the end of an, of an old one, obviously. Um, and then it was named after, I suppose, initially we had the, the, the pre-Christian pagan sun god, Lu, Lu Lavada, um, who was, had other kind of cults to him across, across Britain and Europe. Leon is named after Lu. That's true. We've got Leon, Leon, Ludon in France, mm. Leiden in the Netherlands and Loud in mm. Ireland. And you had... Um, in Wales and Clu Cleogifes or something like that, who's the same figure, but they ha- in even the Irish they have the the, the Lu in Lunasa refers to the god, and then Nasa is to um, a gathering, a celebration mm-hmm. kind of, and and it was Lu this deity who established the the um, the fair at at Talton in County Meath, That's true. where you'd have all these assemblies, kind of kings and nobles and merchants and um, all these kind of contests and athletics and and general celebrations as well so that's, this is the kind of the older pre-christian i guess celebration linked to this to this deity mm. that many people wouldn't necessarily be aware of when you speak the word of lunacy the month of lunacy, no not anymore that it, that it refers to um, a sun god essentially um and the celebrations that he duly established but what's wonderful actually i don't know if you've heard about this in atelton mm. um which again just ties in with that assembly is actually being re-established well the title certainly recently they're going to have competitions between the Connemara Gaeltarts and the Donegal um, Guidor Gaeltarts which is lovely what to see. What are they going to be competing at? Um, they're going to be doing I think there's sports and they're doing literature and art um, a no wonderful way. idea. And yeah. just the Gaeltarts? I believe so to begin with but then they they have great plans to um, incorporate the rest of the country because didn't they in the 30s there was there was yes. they had at the fairs didn't did we see the newspaper cutting here? that's right was it the, the two 20, guys standing in the old um all this kind of old get up with the wolfhounds and mm. stuff like this at these competitions is that right kind of that nationalistic um, yeah. theme back in fact, in the day. didn't they as well have have like football competitions where kind of quote unquote um france would play ireland but france was just a team of irish lads called france, france. for the purposes of the I day that, you know, no. south africa won the 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 uh the such and such race or but there was i don't think there were any, anyone except irish people oh this field, but i had this international i could be totally wrong is this there. fake news now Johnny? Could, yeah it could be could be yeah <laughs> just throwing kind of keeping some disinformation um going there but i remember only only lately looking at that the Telltown um or the enoch Telltown, whatever um, in the 1930s, yeah. But it's a thread that runs it is. through to 2017, which is wonderful. Yeah. Yes, indeed, continues. yeah. Um, 
But I've a, there's a description here, which or a, a kind of piece I dug out from the archive, one of these tapes, and Michael Walsh recorded in County Offaly, and he's describing Garland Sunday, which might be a nice kind of preamble for some of the some of the, um, the, the other accounts that we can have, and just themes that we describe, yeah. They gave me a great description of Garland Sunday. The last Sunday in July. Yeah. Did, did you ever hear it called Garland Sunday? Sure, we always heard it. And I, youngster, living up there. Yeah. Often run up with my father, but... You see, they'd come out from the Queen's County Walk at that time, from over the mountain. That's right. The middle of the mountain along, all along the ways of and Leash. Mm. Well, they'd come out in throws, boys and girls, and bring my lodgings with them. And then there was a place down near the before the mountain, but not at the foot. A great big place to call the Crookhawn. Yeah. Well, there could be five or six or ten sets at the one time dancing and that. Mm. Dancing. They'd come up from Boran, there'd be sidecars, and there'd be one selling gingerbread and lemonade and ginger cakes and, mm. and minerals, and I think. Could sell stout too. Yeah, on the quiz. Yeah. <laughs> well, then that'd be over in Garland Sunday. That'll do. Bottles of stout and all. That'd be out. Before the harvest. Before the harvest, yeah. Absolutely. But that was that was the general kind of, um, I suppose, the, the theme, despite all the different kind of names in the day, they all generally re- revolved, as as Mick Walter says, that there'd be droves would come out. There'd be, be melodians, there'd be kind of music being played. They had these outdoor gatherings of youths who would climb to the summits of their local hills and kind of hilltops and mountains there to just have the crack for the day, basically. Mm. Um, and actually, this is because that kind of comes within a few categories, which I suppose, for the sake of being thorough and giving a clear understanding, it could be divided. So we've got this great spirit celebration associated with the beginning of the harvest and these would often as you said be celebrated by assemblies at these traditional sites and those sites are natural features of three types i suppose so heights springs or wells and then lake shores or river shores and then as well as that um later the idea of fairs would tie in with lunacy mm. so shall we have a quick cursory glance over the, the four of them mm-hmm. and see what interesting facts we've on yes indeed just dying to get to the skinny dipping at yeah. the lake aren't yeah, you yeah well that's it yeah <laughs> we'll work up to that so the festive assemblies um again tying in with that idea as you said there of this joyous approach to celebrating the harvest and this threshold of plenty and the arrival of this new abundance when people were suffering for so long with the shortage of food and resources mm. and my mcneil actually identifies 78 hills across Ireland through the materials here in the archive and through our own research. So we had nine hills in Connacht, or nine mountains or hills, 15 in Leinster, 15 in Munster, and then 39 in Ulster. Mm. So we see kind of a significant rise. And one of them, as an example, um, I'll show my bias here because I did not know about this and it just shows me how little we we sh- listened to our forebears mm. really when we should have listened more. But in Guidor there was a mountain just the north of Guidor called Carnthruna and on Don and the Rehug, which was built every Sunday, mm. they used to and again it was the young people because given the nature of the the height, you're going to almost exclude a certain demographic of the very young and the very old who can't obviously make the climb. So after the midday meal 
the the lady who's the respondent was saying that they would dress in their Sunday best and climb Karnsruna and spend the day there collecting bilberries, singing, dancing, courting. And then what's lovely at the end of the day or during the course of the day, the men would actually make little bracelets of the bilberries for the girls. Mm. But what's interesting and what my McNeil couldn't explain was that they always left the bracelets on the mountain. They never brought them home. Okay. Which is... I don't know whether there's any significance, but again, her description so vivid and poignant, but it gives that idea of climbing to the heights on. And again, as you were saying, there's this kind of variation between the last July or the last Sunday in July and the or the first Sunday in August, depending on which was closest to the yeah, first of August. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in Donegal, they seem to be the first Sunday of August. But the examples for the final Garland Sunday, the final Sunday in July are the same hmm. climbing the heights to just enjoy their company Engaging and revelry and sport absolutely. yeah and what would be a kind of rare um time to do so over the whole community as well that's mm. lovely about the little the little bracelets i'd never heard about that no like and i've not seen it in any of the other um mm. recollections but again it's that idea of whereas all the other quarter day celebrations or festivals in ireland mcneil makes a really interesting point that they're all a little bittersweet sometimes so you've got the may festival mm. which can involve festivities but and got large it. doses of paranoia as well. Exactly. And then you've got, say, Halloween. Mm. You've got the festivity, Same, yeah. but you've got this... Sinister aspect to it, yeah. ...of the undead. Whereas, singularly, when we look at um, August and Garland Sunday, it just seems to be joyous and mm. a sense of celebration, un- yeah. untinged with sadness. Yeah, for once. For once in Ireland. <laughs> There's a piece here of Mick Watch again, and he's talking... Because you mentioned collecting frogberries and, and the... And bilberries and so on, and that was a huge part of, of Garland Sunday celebrations. Yeah. And there's a little, there's a bit, a brief bit of the recording here. Where he describes that and climbing around all these mountain streams. It's kind of idyllic, lovely scene, really. I used to be picking frogs, mate. Oh, the frogs, Dean. A lot of them want to go up. You see, to pick the frogs or to the top. They think they could walk to the top, but get tired before they'd be halfway. But if you kept going, you you would get to the top and could see down into Mount Rat and away off. Leash, as far as you could see, mm. towns, houses. Now, another side was down something the same, but seemingly not as high from that side as this side. Mm. Well, then there'd be mountain streams. Then we had to call it slow. You know yeah. how slow it is? Yeah. An old slow. Well, it would be about two perch or three. Wide. Three wide. To look from one side to the other. Yeah. But you have to go down in a slope, down a long ways. Oh, it would be 25 or 30 feet. Mm-hmm. And there's a grand mountain stream running down in the bottom. But down the sides, there's frozen trees, and you could date all the devil. And there's something like black corns, yeah. but bigger and fairly sweet. Mm-hmm. Could go down, but the time you go to hell and get down, drink all your, the water you wanted out, salmon up to their side. The old alarm clock going in the background there. For As you can hear, very authentic. <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite a kind of, um, I don't know, it's a kind of, it's a pleasant scene. It's quite innocent in its way as yeah, well. He's right. describing you, know, you can go down the side of this steep mountain slope and eat all the berries you like and then drink all the water you want and climb up the other side and eat all the berries. It's lovely. And then you can imagine as well a Sunday. In the previous piece, he describes, you know, that there could be hundreds of people from from parishes all over mm. surrounding this mountain in the local district, this local hill, 
and they're all just ascending to the top of it. So there'll be people you'd never met or wouldn't know. There'll be a huge kind of social um, social outing and music and all that sort of stuff as well. And um, It's true of the entire harvest tradition, though, of this sense of the communal, um, yeah, not only yeah. in celebrating it, but also in reaping the harvest and the actual work involved of mm. neighbours coming together, families, different parishes, um, a huge network of support and camaraderie and I yeah. cooperation which True. was necessary yeah i mean even from the very start you said you have these huge groups uh, kind of celebrations or particularly for young people and then you have the work of the harvest itself which involves around the kind of the metal the whole kind of community cooperative labor among in the community mm. um, and then even the harvest home is the kind of party to to finish the harvest where people are going to come around to the, to the house whatever mm. but um but yeah, these, these kind of ascending to hilltops and, and specifically the idea of it as a young person's kind of festival, something quite joyous about mm. the the kind of the whole theme to these kind of celebrations is quite joyful and innocent. He's he's describing kind of, you know, ginger cake and stuff as well being being sold in bottles of stuff and so on. So it's kind of it sounds like a very pleasant uh, gathering altogether. And just before we started we were chatting about that quote that the festival was enjoyed most by the young, vigorous and high spirited by those for whom life seemed about to offer the most fruitful joys, yeah. which, is, as we were saying, is that metaphor, isn't it, of youth about to enjoy the fruits of life, hopefully, yes, what was coming, yeah, yeah, yeah. but then the it's, harvest that was about to yeah. um, arrive as well, which yeah, is just a lovely idea to think about. It is. It's quite beautiful, really. And just even that the idea of, kind of, of yeah, vigour and strength and joy of youth and kind of just celebrating itself, basically, up on, this, on, this kind of, on these mountaintops, on these mm-hmm. hills, whatever. That's a kind of a lovely, uh, lovely idea. There's a there's another section here. It's from Henry Morris, uh, and he's talking about um, this is in features kind of it's an article he published describing features common to to um, Garland Sunday or Lunas a harvest celebrations in in Ireland and among Scotland in in the Isle of Man and other places. But he says people go on the first of Sunday in August to fairy places. This is very general in Ireland that Sunday being called Garland Sunday. But the present generation does not know what these pilgrimage on this Sunday have anything to do with fairies. So it's also kind of not a particularly common even idea that you find that, that you're going to supernatural places, but mm. but perhaps that you are going to places of a certain kind of import or that these landscapes uh, have a certain kind of, um, I don't know, ideas attached to them maybe, even that this wasn't a kind of commonly done thing. I mean, there are certain even ideas of kind of holy mountains and so on yeah. as well. Really, The most common example, did you know about Garland Sunday growing up at all? It's, it's funny, we don't use the term Garland Sunday in Donegal. Um, no. I, we hadn't heard it. Um, it's Even reading up on it, it seems to be kind of a... Is it an English and Scottish settler? Yeah, well, sorry, even... Yeah, the word... God, I should even describe The word Garland means a uh, kind of posy of flowers. Mm. It's, it's an English kind of uh, board, but, but it also more generally just means or can refer to a party in general. True. So, so that's the kind of the, the context in which it was generally used. But um, but I didn't I didn't remember hearing about it when I was growing up, but there are an enormous amount of, of people in Ireland who would know Garland Sunday very well as Breeks Reek Sunday, true, um, or Donagh um, Nacruche, yeah. yeah, where they go up Crowpatrick in County Mayo, and something up, upwards of twenty thousand pilgrims I think climb that now, and that's where you see an example that's it's the the older kind of pre Christian harvest the celebration of welcoming the harvest in has has kind of. It's made the jump into a kind of Christianized uh, context, albeit a kind of apocryphal folk religious expression where uh, there are these pilgrimages up to the top of this mountain. And then that gets kind of sanctioned by the official church. So there's a church built on top of Crowpatrick. That's true. And on this day, you could have 20,000 or more uh, pilgrims ascending to the top. Some of them, these devotees in their bare feet, some of them climbing on their knees. 
and doing rounds of prayers and so on uh, as they as they climb up this mountain. So you have a very kind of different tone or or kind of um, feeling to this particular kind of celebration as they're climbing the mountain tops. But it's from that same that same idea of ascending to different heights. And yet then there are other kind of sacred mountains or what would have been sacred mountains that didn't make the jump. So there's evidence to suggest that the, the mountain just where I kind of grew up uh, at the bottom of essentially the Sugarloaf in North County Wicklow, that there's a kind of sacred landscape around that in, in parts of County Dublin and in Wicklow of burial mounds or kind of archaeological sites and tombs that have the, the mountain in their site in certain mm-hmm. directions and then even around the mountain itself like Crow Patrick does, that for, as you stand around it, looking at it, there might be certain areas uh, from a tomb. You can see the mountain here and the mm. sun sets or rises out of it at a certain time or whatever the year. But that the Sugarloaf and other places didn't make the jump. So they didn't make the jump into kind of Christian tradition. And they kind of been, any religious or something import has been kind of been dropped or abandoned from them. I knew it. You were all pagans. I that, knew it the minute the I saw you, Johnny. Heathen, a heathen. heathen. Yeah, that's it. But yeah, that aspect of kind of celebration, but then also the kind of the aspect of pilgrimage and ritual and prayer and visiting even graveyards and visiting um, uh, holy, wells holy wells and that sort of stuff is common. Mm-hmm. And then leaving posies of flowers on hilltops or, or at wells or that, that sort of thing is kind of common as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, apart from, I suppose mountains are the more, the more, the more generally well known, yeah. but, but visiting wells and that idea of pilgrimage and prayer, prayer was, was interesting. Um, however, so actually there's just a curious kind of quote in this regard just describing the kind of the Christianized sense of what we just when we talk about Patrick and these pilgrimages. There's a piece here from the Isle of Man in the 19th century. And this is where it's the opposite, where the church are describing these kind of uh, awful practices of people climbing mountaintops on, on Garland Sunday. Disgusted by Absolutely disgr- disgraceful. And a quote goes as follows. It says, The curate and wardens represent to the court that there is a superstitious and wicked custom which is yearly continued and practised in this and neighbouring parishes by many young people, and some of riper years, Claire, going to the top of Snaefell Mountain on the first Sunday in August, where, as they are informed, they behave themselves very rudely and indecently for the greater part of the day. Therefore, they crave that the reverend court may be pleased to order what method must be taken to put a stop to this profane custom for the future. And then it carries on to say that the court, in consequence of this order, ordained that publication be made yearly on the two last Sundays in July by the minister for the time being after the Nicene Creed that whoever shall be found to profane the Lord's Day after this wicked and superstitious manner shall be proceeded against with severe ecclesiastical censures. And the minister and wardens are hereby required to do their utmost in discovering the persons guilty in this particular and to make presentment thereof. There you are. Don't, yeah. don't profane the Sabbath and God of man. Don't. Uh, climb these mountains on Garden Sunday and don't behave very rudely and decently for the greater part of the day, whether young or uh, riper in years. I don't know why you keep looking at me when you say riper years. Well, Claire, <laughs> oh, no, no, no such thing. <laughs> it's in the context of the harvest alone. But, but is that idea of the strictures of the law as we see in so much of yes, that's folk a good point, tradition, yeah. isn't it? That yeah. it's always this kind of authority or the state or the church that seems to kind of um, impose these structures and frameworks and tries to kind of yeah. deaden down Yeah, I mean, I think customs. it's, it, I don't think it would be, um, I don't think it would be, I don't know, hyperbole or something to say that I think that the Catholic Church in Ireland mm-hmm. would be, or the Church in general, would have been responsible for the the kind of quashing and ending of many different aspects of, of traditional customs that were carried on from, from pattern days and, and those kind of feast observances to uh, wake games and so on and so mm-hmm. forth, that 
but that's a thing that you see more broadly, I suppose, the tension with aspects of the state as well. There's other instances here that we can go through, but where time and again there's some sort of, uh, there's a conflict between, yeah, like I said, the powers that be or the court or the ministers or officialdom in some sense, mm-hmm. and then these kind of, these uh, grotesque and rude practices of the peasantry, whatever, they need to be kind of immediately squashed and destroyed. And one thing they looked very unfavourably on was naked swimming. They were not fond of naked swimming. No, yeah. can't understand why. Which, which is yeah, part of, part of the, the Garland Sunday or Howard Lunas' celebrations in Northwestern Europe. Yes, mm. very true. Um, shall we give a little example? Yes. Because I think it's fascinating. So as we were discussing the mountaintop assemblies and kind of what we would call the patron pilgrimages as well with Quilzerich, we also then come to lake shores and river shores when assemb- or where assemblies would be very common. So my McNeil again has 13 examples that she lists in detail. And we've got them from Meath, Westmeath, Tyrone, Cavan, Galway, Mayo. And it was common at these assemblies where kind of communities gathered uh, kind of on lake shores and riversides to drive horses and cattle into the water to cleanse them and protect their health for the coming year. And men would often ride the horses naked into the river for some reason, but almost maybe in a sense to cleanse, them, to cleanse themselves Scandalous. as well, as well as the horse. Would that be true? Perhaps, perhaps. You never yeah. know. It's been interesting. It's, it's like the kind of an inverse of the, of the May Day, mm-hmm. driving the, the um, cattle Cows. and livestock yeah. through the fires, isn't it? It's yeah. interesting, yeah. that's true. into the water. Um, it's one of those things that's apparently, according to the kind of um, academic writing on it, that it's most suggestive of a more ancient ritual than any of the others mm. that's kind of driving the cattle into water and driving the horses into water. Mm. So there could be some very old roots to it. No, and as well, it's spread across about Breton country in Scotland as well. It's it's mm. it's kind of found in France. It's found in Ireland. It's found in Scotland. So it's again like all these things that we look at as well. When we talk about them and we focus on the Irish context, we're we're actually describing the broader European kind of tradition as well, of which these are a part. But it's hugely important to remember that actually, because totally, yeah. we can always think that the Irish are very unique, but actually we're just part of a larger yeah, jigsaw. A thread on the tapestry. It's like Delargy wrote in in Belladus in nineteen thirty two or thirty three or something. He talks about um, there's a piece he has on the importance of 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 our popular customs and so on. But he says that in he refers to the work of the folklore um, of Ireland society. He says that in saving. Ireland's folklore and highlighting it or whatever and honouring that we do the same for, for Europe's mm. tradition so it's kind of this is one thread and we're doing it with this kind of particular kind of nationalist context in mind but it's also as part of this broader European um, thread or this this or, or tapestry as a, yeah. whole, as a whole which we have to kind of always view because these things especially when we look at the crops and, and how the crops were conceived of in tradition it's it's all over Europe the same thing comes up again and again and again and again but which is fascinating when we see it because especially we'll come to the names of the corn and mm. so what um and so on just to see the pattern emerge mm. is hugely interesting it is it really is yeah but just but to, uh, um, naked horse swimming <laughs> your favorite jolly yeah so we have a quote here from this is i almost feel bad t- saying where it is just in case i defame anyone but <laughs> it's in swinford and um, which is obviously just outside castle bar which I've often visited and it's a wonderful part of the world. Too late. <laughs> so we have um, a reference from the Ordnance Survey. Um, I imagine either the letters or the Ordnance Survey. Um, what do you call them again? The, the letters and the maps. The maps. Mm. So we have the 
a quote here from Mr. Page, and he says, The people, it is said, swim their horses in the lake on that day to defend them against incidental evils during the year and throw spancels and halters into it, which they leave there on the occasion. They are also accustomed to throw butter into it, this being the lake or the river, with the intention that their cows may be sufficiently productive of milk and butter during the year. The clodema, or lump of butter, thrown in at a time, does not be more than a quarter of a pound in weight. After the crowds have gone away, the poor, who have not the necessaries of life, otherwise than by obtaining them, by alms from liberal or charitable persons, assemble and carry off as much of the butter as they can gather out of the lake. Out of the lake, that is yeah, grim. That is grim. That's really interesting though, yeah. So that is from Mayo. I'm sorry, Mayo. That's quite all right, Mayo. No, sure. They've got it, great foot butters. One, one of the things with the, with the uh, there are, there's a supplementary kind of piece to this uh, that Maura McNeil writes later on about ritual horse bathing at harvest time, and she finds a few more examples of the same. But for some reason, she asked herself at the end, of this piece it seemed to survive more uh, in the midlands mm. um, and without knowing quite why so it's plenty of intriguing kind of strange aspects to maybe something that was a particularly old custom that only small kind of vestiges of remain uh, which is interesting in and of itself of why would other aspects surrounding the harvest have kind of again made made the jump into more contemporary periods whereas this seems to be I mean I wonder if it's if it's practiced at all today I wouldn't, I wouldn't imagine so I wouldn't I've never heard of it mm. Um, if, if you know that it is practiced, yes, exactly. Johnny would love to know. <laughs> yes, indeed, yes. But there's um, there's a piece here from uh, in, in this regard about, about uh, the riding of horses into the sea in a state of undress. And this occurs, this is a magistrate in County Clare in 1833. And they're, they're kind of riding, again, we see like officialdom, um, who's kind of inter, inter, interfering or intervening or whatever with these these customs. And they describe the disgraceful practice of bathing on the strand of Kilkee at all hours of the day to the great annoyance of females who were by such indecent exposures presented from exercising on the beach. And it describes that in, eventually this, this magistrate, they banned uh, men from this particular beach because at this time they were riding their horses into the sea and causing consternation. To the females? To the females and to the judge, it would seem. Um, the judge in, was clearly a man. Had he asked clearly, a woman, I'm sure the females would have had no he, problem. He might well have just wanted to joining himself and felt bad that he couldn't but there are instances of these these from from like i was saying from aspect similar expressions in france um in and in the, the breton peoples and so a kind of an example of a tradition of the old celtic world it would seem mm-hmm. that fits in again with these kind of this harvest time and um, garden sunday lunacy celebrations a curious and interesting one but really curious and i suppose just to finish up in terms of the um celebrations and the activities carried out at this period of time the fairs it's also worth mentioning just for the sake of completeness so we should differentiate between an ina and an ina so it's a-o-n-a-c-h and o-e-n-a-c-h which so we have the very old ina o-e-n-a-c-h which would be the that hotel town and which is um a kind of a unitive religious political and social assembly and then to differentiate that with the modern ENA or the kind of the fairs, which is more economic with the buying and the selling. Mm. But as you said, the 1st of August being a quarter day, it would be very common to have a fair in the main townlands for the very practical reason, not only of buying and selling, but also of hiring workers and labourers for the harvest ahead. Mm. So this is where the kind of the Spalpini come in. And we have, I suppose everyone knows about the, the poem and Spalpini and the kind of migrant workers. 
and we see them across Europe. We see many Irish men in England and they used to start the harvest in Cheshire in the south of England and actually follow the harvest up to Dumfrieshire in Scotland, hmm. which we will come to this because I wonder what role that would have played in taking some of the traditions that we had there and bringing them back. That's a very, very good point. Yeah, yeah no doubt. I'm not just here for jazz hands, oh, Johnny. Sure. Okay. That's a really good point. Yeah, of course, the, again, when, when travel and stuff is limited, mm-hmm. that um, I hadn't thought about that, either, that you'd have then these these people moving to these other, other portions and, and districts of the country or other countries mm-hmm. and then traveling forth and bringing back these customs. Yeah. So just, um, yeah, so the fairs would be hugely important. Um, one of the most, I suppose, well-known would be the Puck Fair in Kilorglin in Kerry, which celebrates the the goat as king. Mm-hmm. And which is lo- what's lovely about that, apparently, you know, the storyteller Sean O'Connell mm. in, from the Bolish and the Shellac in Kerry, he said, and I don't know if this is true, but it, in recollections, it said that the only time he ever left his home was to travel to the Puck Fair. And he only had the train fare to get there and he had to walk the 20 miles back. Oh my God. Isn't that? That's so funny. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, I, I add a disclaimer, but um, <laughs> I, I just love the, the idea of that. Um, and as a final point, because I'm always quite aware that we do a lot of the rural, and I know one of our loyal listeners is keen to hear more of the urban, which we will do in subsequent podcasts. But in Dublin, Cork and Galway, three of our major cities, there was actually a very active kind of celebration at this time as well or kind of period of activity in dublin we have references to what is called the riding of the franchises which i don't know if you've heard about this no, as, as a dubliner and um, i i hadn't so it would be um a parade where the tradesmen would i suppose display and kind of or have representations of their trade and then they would have someone representing their patron saints with them walking oh. through the streets so you'd have um the the tanners and the, I suppose the blacksmiths and various spinners and whatnot and then you'd have the different patrons which I don't have with me on this page which is unfortunate because they name all the patron saints the Saint Loy, Saint Crispin and each one had their patron saint and this would happen as a tri- kind of triennial procession apparently called the riding of the franchises and in Cork and Galway they would have something similar where they would do something special or particular on the 1st of August or the Sundays before or just after where they would you know elect mayors or mm. something in recognition that this was an important time not only for the Gaelic world so to speak out in rural Ireland but also the in urban, the, ta- yeah. the urban as well. Like it's a kind of economic uh, time for mm. economic concern this is like the kind of the hiring fairs that you mentioned mm. for, for, the, for the May Day kind of customs as well I suppose where people are going to they're going to have this period now that begins and you're going to be off with the farmer or whoever if you're in the countryside but that exactly. that's interesting I'd never heard of that in, in Dublin at all so it's good um, to remember the urban because there is there's always folklore there absolutely. as well um, but yeah I suppose after after kind of the Garland Sunday observances and all the joy of uh, and celebrating and climbing mountains and eating berries and so on they have to get to work they have to get to work yeah and this is again it, it, but it points like what you were saying earlier on there about the communal nature of this that it's it's men and women going to the fields mm. Um, and their children, all hands on deck, basically, to kind of to cut the corn, the rye, the oats, the wheat, the barley that was there. Uh, there's a description here from um, a fellow in Mick O'Toole in, in County Mayo, and he's describing the size that was being used to cut hay. So, I mean, nowadays, when we look at a field being harvested, often you just you just have kind of you know, one machine or two machines yeah. traveling around. I mean, even fields that are totally it's all automated. So the, the kind of focus is on 
it's a kind of it's viewed in purely I don't know it's kind of just empty material concerns where everything's mass produced and here's one machine it's just turned into a factory yeah basically. there's no human element whereas you have to I suppose consider or imagine the period when you know in these kind of long evenings out in the morning or these kind of long days and so on people would go out to the fields in the morning and they'd be cutting uh, side by side working alongside they'd be talking they'd be telling stories um, and they'd be out together basically working there you know that, that there'd be the noise of these sickles and sides that they were kind of as they were hacking away, one of them in the, in the tapes that were played described them that they'd be cutting, they'd be saying like the ringing of a bell as they're, as they're going, going through all the corn or whatever. But it was quite a kind of rare thing for the whole community to get together and for men and women to join in this work as, as one kind of unit. You know? I have a little poem here actually that Roddy the Rover um, published in 1936 in the Irish press, which it goes as follows. Four sharp sides sweeping in concert keeping the rich robed meadows broad bosom over Four strong men mowing, with bright health glowing, a long green sword spread each man before. That's beautiful. That's brilliant. There, there's a description here of um, the scythe that was being used to, to cut the hay, which we'll have a go of. Most of the hay was cut here in my young days with the scythe, the army scythe. And you'll see, you see the traps of the grass beginning to turn right now. You'll get into a gym with your scythe and mow it out. You would never, you would never dig up your measure. No, no. I used to have all my hay saved about the second week of July, right up and tied out for the winter. And then you would, around the middle of September, you had six or eight inches of after grass again coming up for the cows to eat. Delighted with his work. Absolutely. Rubbing it in for his neighbours. Yeah, exactly, yeah. There's, um, I mean, there's another piece of the play where he describes the day's work and it's kind of, it's slightly unreal because just the amount he's described in getting up at, say, six in the morning, you're out, um, out in the boat, you're pulling up pots, lobster pots, and you're kind of fishing away, then you're back in by ten, then it's up to the fields and you're kind of cutting through all these, the, cutting the hay and all this. We'll play this uh, just as a description and he gives out, he's like, we weren't in bed sleeping. <laughs> you had a long day, people weren't in bed sleeping. They'd be out on the bay at six o'clock in the morning and they'd be coming back in about ten. Then you would have a bit of a snack and take your sight and let into the field of hay, sharpen your sight. And you could hear that sight going through it like the ring of a bell. And you'd have a rood of hay cut down a couple of hours. You'd throw the sight away if you were and you'd take your old pike and turn it over. Take it out and leave it there. Go off then and even lift your pots. Set them again, come back again at the dusk of the evening, take your hair out and go along there. And we'll draw the hay up in rows. But it was drying for the night. I got what when I you come, <laughs> that was work. When you come in the next day for your pots, you had only to turn that hay over again with the pike and to save and dry. As green as you'd be in trying to eat a different when the lovely smell was coming from. That was a long day. Wasn't it a long day? Yeah. Hard work. You can imagine the kind of the the I guess the the quiet pride if you had the time that mm. you'd take in in seeing all the kind of the, the field laid out so neatly and but just the the amount of work as he, mm. like as he describes out at six in the morning and then from from dusk and then back out again you know between fishing and then cutting the hay there's just the work is to be done it can't there's no kind of 
like he says, no, people were in the bed sleeping. You know? No time for sleeping. No time for sleeping, yeah. Was we have some recollections actually in one of the scrapbooks that we're um, working to, cat- to categorise where they're speaking about in the north of Ireland there were a number of people who had been sent to prison for various reasons during kind of various uprisings and they're speaking about their neighbours actually coming to help um, take in their harvest mm. which is lovely and it's that sense of long days but you wouldn't mind doing it for for others this kind of communal social sense of yeah. everyone helping one another yeah that was that was a kind of rural i guess cooperative labor where mm. i have my fields and everyone comes out and gives a hand and then vice versa that mm. it's kind of i guess it's, it shows kind of a, an actual community that kind of get together and work together basically we'll come to the idea of competition though shortly but on, yes. on the whole though there is that sense of cooperation the communal kind of cooperation yeah. that occurs yeah um and the, the mowing as well, you mentioned kind of there's the scythe and before that there's the sickle mm. that was used to cut these crops. So it wasn't a kind of mechanised or industrialised um, process at that stage, basically. But that, again, it was people working side by side. And there were certain even, there was the idea of certain customs that people, certain individuals were credited with a kind of charm, a supernatural charm, that they'd have this really sharp edge all the time to the sickle or to the scythe. They'd have edge charm, or on the ear, so that you'd write this charm down You'd sew it into the clothes of your the clothes you were wearing, and that you'd never have to stop and sharpen your your, your instrument. Yeah. Whereas somebody with some uh, piece of rubber side or who didn't have the benefit of this charm, kept having to stop and to sharpen it in a certain way, and that they'd be kind of dragging and killing themselves pulling pulling their way through the grass. Whereas this person who had the charm would just be kind of casually mowing through enormous kind of amounts or whatever. Um. There's a there's another description here on how to sharpen the scythe, but also a kind of story that this individual has, this is Michael O'Brien, on a good mower and a bad mower. There's a story where he describes this woman has two men out working in for her in the field, and one of them, as he walks up, he cuts all, all of the hay, and he cuts all the corn in one go, and he walks back without doing anything, because he's done it all, whereas the other guy walks back, uh-huh. and he's not he's not great. So he, when he comes back, he's still cutting. Oh, I see. But she takes the bad mower, she looks, and he's like, oh, look, this, you're cutting it only one, one way up. He's cutting it up <laughs> and back. Tell us about the size now. Uh, there was a, a great art in keeping your size sharp, wasn't it? Ah, you know, to know the way to sharper. If you couldn't sharper, you couldn't cut. You killed yourself cutting. Destroy all of you. Was there, was there, what was the knack in it now? You need to know the way to sharp it, just the same as sharpen a knife there. If you didn't know the way to rub her down right, you could rub away and you should never be sharp. And then you'd no bother mowing. If you could sharp it, you'd just run it. Uh, uh, Very easy to swing. Only handle on the side, just like that, back and forth. Another man, he would have no edge on, he'd be pulling her through it like that. And I'm like yelling and the sweat running at him. Did you ever cut corn? Like the two old boys that went away to cut these two boys was cutting for this woman, you see. And the one of them real good more. Oh, Lord, they could have just walked along like that, you know, just the same as going to town and down the foot rock. This other way, he wasn't too good a more, and he was missing half of it, and when he was coming back again, you see, you mowed away that length, away on as far as you could, and then you turn back and you come back and start to mow the same one again. And this man, he was always coming back with his scythe and his shoulder to start, and the other way, he was coming back in the way they had him mow, he was batting away at it, mowing it again. The woman was watching at the man and went in for the dinner. She says to the, she says, one of you men will do me, she says, from this on. She says, I see this man, she says, he moves back and forth, he says, and you come walking back, she says, 
you're only mowing the one way, she says. You go home, she says, I'll keep this man. And he could mow no home. Aye, you'd be hopeless. <laughs> and the man that could mow well, he got the road. But For he was coming walking back again. There was Good, isn't it? That's great. Yeah. But yeah, you can imagine the kind of the, to the total total difference uh, and the opportunities it would kind of provide as well. And and it's one of the one of the lovely customs that appeared as well and that seems to be a kind of a borrowing from our sister island over in Britain and that has a particular kind of provenance or occurs particularly in the north of Ireland is the harvest knot, mm -hmm. which is a beautiful little um kind of custom, I suppose. These are these were kind of given back and forth as love tokens between men and women working in the fields. And that you take these wisps of straw, small kind of knots of straw, or three of them together, say, and plait them over one another, tightly over one another, so that you have this little kind of plaited loop, or these little loops with the with the grain attached to them, that would then be worn on a on your button or whatever like that. They're beautiful. They're so ornate. We're actually sitting looking at one right now. We have one on the desk as our yeah symbol for all these, these podcasts. It's a lovely one. But um, I'll put some photographs up or links to photographs in the description for the podcast and SoundCloud that people can 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 look below and see examples of them. In England, some of them in particular are absolutely beautiful mm. uh, and really ornate. Um, but as, as customs generally, they, they, they're, they're quite kind of, it's a simple process, but they're kind of tricky tricky to make as a kind of finickety little things to construct. They are. They look very, I think they look easier than they probably are. They're, yeah, they're quite kind of delicate things. There's a, there's a piece here, um, where is this now? And they would is make them for, each one would be different for the male and the female? Yeah, the, female. Fe the female ones would have, the, the ones worn by females would have the grain still attached, uh, and then the ones worn by males are kind of simpler, the grain is shorn away, so it's just the three little socks and the loop. Oh, I see. So I guess there's an aspect of kind of femininity and masculinity present in the two of them. There's a, there was a piece uh, regarding these by T.G.F. Patterson wrote these, these um, about customs and, and harvest customs in Armagh, the lovely kind of article giving all the different details. But one of the accounts, he describes seeing this young fellow wearing a harvest knot and commenting on it to him and saying, oh, this is, this is beautiful, this harvest knot, kind of, where did, where did you get that? And he said, oh, his sister made it. And he, this author then found out where this young man lived and he was speaking to him later on. He said, I must knock over to your house to get your sister to make me one of these harvest knots. At which point he said, the young man became greatly confused <laughs> and very nervous and finally admitted the poor guy that, that a girl made it or gave it to him. Ah, bless. So he was obviously terribly shy or nervous about this thing. But they were typically kind of exchanged in this way because, again, it was an opportunity when, when men and women from around the community and from further afield in different places were working the fields, working side by side, that this is the kind of natural thing that these would be exchanged. It was a broader kind of communal uh, type of work that was kind of quite rare, really, as opposed to, uh, right, men work here, women work here, and we're just on the home or on our own land or wherever. And now people get to go further afield, and, and that's the kind of the, the, the type of thing that, uh, that manifested at this time. They exist in Irish tradition, but they seem to be a borrowing from from um, from English tradition, and particularly have great profusion in in, in the north. Like I was saying, they exist yeah. in greater instances up in the north. But um, like I said, I'll put I'll put pictures in, in the in the description um, to see some of the examples because they're beautiful things to behold, really, really lovely to, to look at. Yeah. Um, but I suppose after the, the kind of the main kind of work of the harvest had been done, by you know, even coming towards the end of September, the, there was. I guess the focus changed um, onto the cutting of the last last sheaf, which is the kind of huge, um, symbolic, kind of ceremonial ritual aspect to it all over Europe and of particular antiquity. It seems as well, where where as the crops were being kind of 
uh, gathered in and cut the last bundle of corn standing in the field it was ceremonially kind of cut it wasn't just cut and like the rest of them and then there was no kind of it was a specific kind of point i suppose uh, where and sometimes people would kind of stop before the cutting of this last sheaf and they'd, they'd cut it in a particular way so men and women were free to join in they'd throw their sickles at they'd stand back and they'd throw their sickles at it to kind of to cut the the, uh, the, the last sheaf. sheaf sometimes the last sheaf as well was plaited it was plaited so that it would kind of uh, look quite ornate in and of itself um but there, there's an enormous amount of, of different kind of aspects of belief and material in this regard one of the things i read which i thought was funny although there was an aspect of wanting to be the one to cut it but then also will come to certain areas looked upon it as kind of um an omen of bad luck but um, i read about one farmer who apparently used to bury or kind of almost um obscure a little patch of hay so that he could always be the last one to have it to do the mm. last sheaf whereas you know someone in the top right corner might say right we've mowed it all so no. here's the last sheaf and they would cut it but Boyo in the bottom left corner would be like, oh, no, this is actually, That's I'll have the last brilliant. sheet. Isn't no that way. so funny that they've actually, um, yeah. it was such a part of the, the custom that they went to those lengths. This is, uh, here's the same fellow who was talking about sharpening the side and the good morning and bad. Mick O'Brien, he was talking, he mentions the Kaliak and the, the, the cutting of it. Did you ever hear tell of the, uh, at, at the end of a, a harvest, uh, the, the last stuke of corn that was being cut, there was a ceremony about it? Come Aye. to the end of the field. They had a big harvest, dancing and everything that night, maybe, and in the house. Aye. In my house or your house or wherever it was. But did you ever hear that there was a hare in the... In the Aye, in the last shave. When they were whining and she went out and away she went. If she didn't get caught with a scythe. Did you ever hear a name for the last shave? Did they call it the last shave, just? Aye, the last shave. The Kallach? You never heard it called the Kallach? Kallach. Aye, something like that. Was right, the Kalya. But then they used to have big lunch spreadings and everything, and they would have danced there in the house that night. There would be dancing. Tell us about the dance. There'd, what there'd would be, that be like? There would be dance. It would be the same as giving harvest thanks in the church there. Mm-hmm. They would have a good dance and all. The farmer would give a dance. The farmer would have a dance in his own house. And and might be in the kitchen or he might have a barn. They'd have it in the barn. What music would he? All the boys would be gathered around, and uh, there'd be some couple of boys with a couple of violence and they would give them the music mm. all night. Would be whiskey there? There'd be a drop of whiskey or maybe a drop of this boy we we're talking about, poison. Mm. Big celebration. Why? That was the harvest time with the cutting of the last sheaf. But there's a few interest. there's a few kind of, I suppose, worthwhile things that are mentioned there where the collector there, Seamus O'Cahan, is the former director of the, the National Folklore Collection here. He asked, was there ever a hair in it? Mm. Um, and he also, and so there's a reference to an animal, and then there's also a description of it as the Kalyach. That's true. Um, which means kind of the old wife, the hag, or the granny, which are other terms that were used to describe the last sheaf. And it was also described then as uh, the maiden, the queen, sometimes as well. So you have this kind of, this aspect where, I guess, I suppose the idea where, where the corn or the crop is personified by a spirit who is... A nature spirit who's kind of conceived of generally as a as a female, either as a maiden or as a mother. Um, this is the case all over Europe, in Germany, in France, in 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 the kind of Slavonic countries, um, in Scandinavia. You find this again and again and again. The idea of the corn mother, the rye mother, the barley mother, um, or the, the and in Irish Irish tradition, like we're describing there, it's the kalyach. It's kind of this old woman basically who who is 
the personification of the a generalized kind of corn spirit basically mm-hmm. and that in the last cutting of this sheaf sometimes the corn mother or the caliph or whoever across Europe sometimes she's caught with celebration sometimes it is that she's killed yeah. um, or that she's kind of taken away and so on and so forth and that it's essentially I suppose the idea is that she exists wherever corn is being cut so that when the crop was was kind of cut and the last sheaf was ceremonially cut the kalyach or the hair or whatever it was the idea was that this spirit then went to the next field yep. where they were still cutting and it would carry on like this until it was uh, until until all, all these these kind of had, had been cut basically because they would often say that wouldn't they we're sending you the hair that, that we're sending it. you the kalyach they yeah, would shout it across exactly the field. And, and yeah that it was a kind of and that was kind of as done in a mocking or derisive tone where it meant you're being slightly lazy or we're better than you. Yeah. Uh, we're, we've, we've finished our work and you're still toiling at it. There's a description in George Fraser's The Golden Bow where he describes um, beliefs in this regard across Europe, but he talks about in Wales, there's a particularly kind of uh, good instance where he describes that the mower who's managed to kind of cut this last sheaf takes it and very kind of clandestinely goes to the neighbours the next field where they're still working. But if anyone suspects his his visit or sees him coming and then oh he's he's working over those other fields they'll unceremonially kind of tell him to get the hell out of here basically right. so we'd have to creep up behind a bush or down by some kind of gap in a fence or something like that and see who's mowing and throw the last sheaf at them and see if they can hit them but just basically put this on them okay so that they now have the old woman basically and that the idea is this has to be you can't be the last person with it in some instances it was said that you then had to feed this old woman that there was a famine in the farm the and, and you had ahead. to feed her for the year yeah, yeah. so that she, again there's there's a treatment of it with kind of with reverie with celebration also with distrust but the idea that there's there's a, a generalized kind of nature spirit uh, which is an embodiment of this this kind of i suppose natural aspect or embodiment of a particular um realm of nature uh, that manifests in the crops all over germany I mean, if, if the if the wind would blow in, in parts of germany across a wheat field It'd be said, oh, there goes the corn mother, or the mm. corn mother can be seen, on, and you know, there she is in the field, or whatever. Um, so you have this dual aspect of femininity as well, where sometimes she's the maiden, sometimes she's the the hag or the granny. There's sometimes you'd have a last sheaf made to look like a, a kind of uh, as though there's a little person inside a big person. That there's ah. a kind of the maiden is inside the granny, or something, that there's the the grain that has has newly ripened. And, and given us kind of sustenance and has sustained us and will keep us alive for this year and then there's a grain yet to ripen uh, to bring kind of sustenance and, and, and abundance into the future and profusion and all these kind of things um, that there's that aspect of kind of femininity I suppose that's, that's symbolised and, and fertility, in and fertility suppose, yeah, yeah. That, that comes into these things and these basic concerns and Fraser makes note as well of the sense that that when you look at the how these kind of expressions manifest they're open to all people, so it's not a priestly class who practice them. They're not these kind of propitiatory rites. They're they're magic uh, rituals where you or I or anyone young or old can engage in these certain practices, and that they're not linked to a deity. That the individual attached isn't a deity in the sense of how a god might have a certain name like Lou or mm. like uh, Dionysus or something like that in Greek tradition. That it's the corn mother. That's wherever there's corn, there is the corn mother. It's a general kind of nature spirit that's being worshipped. So in that sense, on account of the, the generalized sense of it and the kind of the context in which these rituals are practiced, not by a priestly class or an elite of the society, he describes them as particularly ancient and quite quite primitive. But you can imagine fields all over Europe 
from like I was saying from Germany, France, uh, England, Ireland, Poland, Scandinavia, all across that this same conception of 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 the corn being being personified uh, as female as this kind of mother figure or a maiden figure that was bringing sustenance and providing sustenance and who is embodied in the last sheaf which is treated with a kind of reverie when it was cut but then also with this kind of it's used it's it's put onto the next field as mm. a kind of you don't want to be the last person with, with it, it basically um, and there's mention by Fraser as well of, of dousing it with water which he describes as a rain charm or the person who cut it with water mm. that this kind of this these and that's very common in Ireland and England as well or sometimes whiskey was thrown on the person who managed to cut it Sometimes it was put round the neck of the person who managed to cut it and they were dragged home and they'd have a big party and mm. so on. It was almost apparently as, again, it's that idea of a stable <laughs> tradition, but variable across regions. Mm. So that sometimes was put around the neck of the person who cut it or the, the owner of the field or his wife, almost as a, a noose, as mm. in, not in a, in a properly threatening manner, more in a, a lighthearted way, but as in, it won't come off until you pay us or you yeah. feed us. Yeah, at the end yeah. Of the and that was the harvest home then, where yeah. where the farmer would kind of, uh, yeah, buy that back. They they'd pay, uh, so those who had been working the farm would be treated to this kind of giant party, and then or a giant feast, and then more broadly the community might be treated to a broader party of kind of singing and dancing and music and so on and so forth, and, um, but yeah, the, the I suppose it's that that idea of the kind of, the 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 femininity of it, the symbolic aspect of it. Uh, and it's it's the kind of the last thing that's that's then that's then cut, but it's 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 a hugely common. And again, actually in England, there there are there are more examples at least that I've seen, um, of these really beautifully ornate uh, the last sheaf, sometimes called the queen or the corn dolly or the kern or the churn mm. in in England as well. The C H I or N, which is from the old English for corn, yes. as opposed to the churn used used for the implement used to churn butter to 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 churn milk to make butter the, the the churn in relation to this where you see it is, is more related to, to the idea of the corn this grain um but from, from like i was saying from greece all over europe eastern europe north northwestern europe and scandinavia and so on these practices are particularly archaic are particularly um uh, popular and what we should also mention is the last sheaths as a weapon or to use it in curse making to curse your enemy mm-hmm. and we've come across this before which is very dark side to folk tradition which we see from time to time but that if you stole the last sheaf that someone because obviously they would bring the last sheaf to the house of the owner and it would often stay there for the celebration of the harvest home and sometimes they would actually keep it for the year until the following harvest so you'd see instances of the last sheaf being held in the house and being hung above the door Mm. and you might see a few of them they have lovely descriptions of this golden sheaf um, and numerous examples across the are in a certain room and but the worst thing was if you stole this last sheaf you could actually use it to to harm your enemy who had scorned you in love or underplayed you in a business deal and how it worked was you gave the last sheaf the name of your enemy and then you would bury it and as the last sheaf rotted in the ground so too would the health of your enemy decline Mm. And we have awful recollections in the archive of people actually going back to where they buried it and watering it so as to make it rot quicker or sticking pins in certain joints of Mm, the the last sheaf to represent the joints of the person to inflict more pain as their health declined. And then thankfully, uh, there was a method of reversing this. We have a story about a priest who's brought in to, 
to, to kind of find out what is wrong with this person who's suffering severely and they discover that he or she's been cursed and he goes to the family who's done it and demands that they rectify the situation so they dig up the last sheaf and dry it by the fire and the process of drying it apparently reverses the, mm. or was believed to reverse the curse and the person um, regained health thankfully but there is that darker undertone isn't yeah, there to folk it's a, tradition it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's not uncommon that idea that last sheaf being used um, there's a, a piece I, I dragged out from the tapes in the archive here Mrs Annie Lynch and she's describing exactly as, as you've described it there a sheaf um, buried with pins in it to attack she says if, if I had a spite on you that that um, that this is what you do and that in other instances where sometimes they're they're found in sand pits or dug up and they're like Ooh, you know you just oh, suddenly yes. found that someone has it in for you whatever but that was the only way apparently that it could be cured if you dig it up okay. then it could, it could be broken but she also makes an interesting point that she says that when the pins and things would be in as it was buried yeah you'd be you'd be getting increasingly ill and sick but you'd have no symptoms no pain so mm-hmm. you wouldn't know what was what was what was the matter with you at all? Here's this piece, an interview with her. Then they used to put down the shift too, didn't they? Oh, I don't tell anyone they didn't like mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They'd get a shave cold. Would it be a full shave? Ah, well, I suppose it, it was supposed to be, but sure, there might be a small one, you know, I don't know. You'd, you'd get it and if I had a spite to you and I said, but look, and I'd finish him off and I'd get this shave and I'd take it home with me and that. You had to stick a pin in every, you know them, the join. Aye, stick pins through all them in the shape and then tie it up again and go to some old buggy place that it wouldn't be long rotten. I heard him saying he seen one of them dug up in a sand pit somewhere, but it didn't rot. Like, oh. If corn as little be rotten, you'd be getting some disease and fading off yeah. without pain or ache. You wouldn't know what the hell would be on you. No one would know. Doctor couldn't find out what to be on you. Was there any remedy against that? Oh, I don't know. Unless it was lifted up, someone you wouldn't do it up. I think not. I think once it was down for you, mm. once your name was on it, <laughs> it was the last year. Eh? Once your name was on it, it was the last year. Once your name was on it. That was the last year. It's dark, isn't it? You've yeah. had it. That's it, yeah. You're kind of symbolically imbued. And that's, that's the kind of very fundamental idea of the notion of sympathetic magic that you mm. take this kind of item and you imbue it with some essential kind of characteristic or symbolic essence of the individual that you want to attack mm. or um, cause benefit to or yourself or whatever and that you cause change in this item in this case the sheaf and it will cause change in the intended victim in this case your enemy so as the sheaf rots your enemy gets sick same principle people will be generally familiar with the voodoo doll idea yeah. where I put a pin into this effigy and someone else feels the pain that's the idea of sympathetic magic at, at, a, at a very basic level um, but yeah the last sheaf had that kind of element to it where it could be used to uh, to cause damage and destruction and it was also used for divination as mm. um, many festivals kind of they have that element but there was the idea of the first woman to enter a house beneath the sheaf her name would be the farmer's future's wife's name mm. or they would Grains taken from the last sheaf and put under a pillow that you would dream of your future spouse. Mm. So there's that element of, as with kind of at Halloween and May Day, that is a period of time where divination is very popular. Yeah, the, that reference to wedding divination, I've heard that a few times before. Um, and there were other instances I've come across where the sheaf, if it was placed on water, it, it could find a drowned body. Mm. If someone was drowned, 
that this would be placed on, on the surface of the lake or whatever and it would kind of float off and rest over the, the body of the drowned person. So it have these kind of strange uh, secondary properties again. And it shows as well, as we were saying in, in the last edition of the podcast with vernacular architecture, that material culture and the material items in the natural world often reveal more about our kind of spiritual beliefs and symbolic things mm. than the more abstract expressions like storytelling kind yeah. of customs. It's when, when we deal with objects and the secondary, the dual meaning that objects have where on the one hand, um, pieces of corn or, or crops or whatever are just you know natural items and on the other hand they can be used in all these these different ways that the last sheaf was used in in um in sweden and denmark i think there's the yule boar i could be wrong with this where where the the grain from the last sheaf was was baked into a cake that uh, rests on the table for the entirety of the period of yule which is the kind of pre-christian the pagan mm. um winter festivity that becomes kind of christmas or whatever um, and that the grain mixed into this was kind of again would it would appear in, the, in this on this on this cake but the idea of the the last sheaf being represented as an animal as well is particularly common so again in the same extent all over europe you have apart from it being known as the corn mother or this female the crop and the corn in general was understood as uh, as an animal that i suppose it could be that even the last sheaf as it was being kind of gathered up when it was cut animals would often yeah, they would run out retreat, it. wouldn't they, to that final place? Exactly, so yeah. As, as everyone's kind of mowing through the field, they would gradually be kind of being pushed into a certain corner so that when that was cut, uh, a hare might dash out mm-hmm. or a bird might fly out or whatever particular animal it was. But there's a huge amount of different animals. There's wolves, dogs, horses, all the strange kind of sounding animals to us that you wouldn't have roving around free in these kind of yeah. fields nowadays. But again, it seems a reference to the antiquity of this tradition that in older periods of time, you would have had these different types of animals roaming more freely. roaming around, and in the same sense that sometimes in in parts of Germany and so on, when the wind is seen to kind of blow across a wheat field, it was said there's the corn mother. It was sometimes also said there's the corn wolf is 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 moving through. And um, I remember reading an instance from England where a mower who was having difficulty mowing or who was pretty particularly lazy, they'd say that the the white dog hasn't or that the dog the the dog has walked past him. Oh. That the spirit of the corn has somehow afflicted and affected this mower. But again, in the same sense that when the last sheaf was cut, this corn spirit would, would transform itself into an animal and it would flee to the next site where corn was still being cut and onto the next field and onto the next field until it was captured mm. and, and done. And that's why in our tradition, apart from it being called the Kalyuk, when the Kalyuk was cut, the cry would often go out to the next field over still working, we sent you the hair. And that is the idea of that, that Supposing that of transformation from one thing to another was kind of common for as a belief for our forebears and mm. our ancestors, and that, in their view, when this thing was cut, well, a bird has flown out, and now the the that bird, uh, embodies the, the spirit, spirit of, of the corn. So it's an animal all, all over Europe in the same sense that it's regarded as kind of dual femininity and this nature spirit. It also often takes the form, uh, uh, of an animal in this way, and then again that even finds itself as I was describing in, in this cake that's baked at Yule. The the Yule boar, is then made from the last sheaf uh, or that the, the last sheaf then often would be kind of like you're saying hung up in the house or grain would be given to livestock or would be kind of used in their foods to promote health and strength and kind of well-being in, in a generalized sense i suppose um, but yeah the last sheaf is kind of has these these aspects of femininity or as this kind of anthropomorphic kind of component to it mm. and then it's all held up in the house and kind of kept there you know snug above the door while the year goes ahead until the next harvest comes around. This is the basic 
idea. Idea, yeah. It's yeah. interesting though, isn't it? It's just, and there's so much literature that we'd recommend you jump in and explore it for yourself or to pop in and visit us. Because as you said, it tells us so much about our beliefs and customs. You can read as many stories as you like, but actually when you see the tangible, it brings it so much more vividly yeah. to life in many ways. It really does, yeah, yeah. And these are the kind of customs that were maintained by our forebears for countless generations. And it links us back, not just into, into a closer kind of recognition or closer contact with our own cultural inheritance and tradition, but the broader European tradition of which we're all a part, in which many ways it seems strangely alien to us nowadays for these things to be kind of removed or, or we're removed from them almost. We w- we're not aware of these, these very kind of basic and old ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by going to this material, the traditional material, either in literature or like you're saying, to visit us or to visit the archive and to come through the manuscripts here or to and pop the audio recordings. Or to doofus.ie as well. That's, yeah, there's another perfect way to do it. If you go to doofus.ie, D-U-C-H-A-S dot I-E, and you could enter a keyword search, enter last sheaf mm-hmm. um, or the hair or something, and you'll get thousands and thousands of stories like this. Um, one of the sorry Johnny mm. one of the poignant things that actually you said during the week that really resonated with me and might be a nice poignant note to end on is you were speaking about the workers in the fields would often kind of chat as they worked mm. and then gradually as kind of more kind of industrialization came in and the tools changed from the sickle to the side to the kind of the modern these huge combine harvesters that we see now that one man either that you were speaking to or that you'd read was saying that once the machines started coming in they found it difficult to speak to one another because they couldn't hear one another Mm. and then eventually they stopped speaking Mm. which i just think given that we are very romantic in our nature sometimes here is just such a a representation of where we are sometimes decay and degeneracy exactly we've just stopped talking and listening to each other you know it was um i was chatting to a friend of mine but it was something that he'd read uh, but it was a description of two men describing describing uh, the tractor as it first came in, and oh, they're yeah. kind of pla- you know cutting the corn through this, I think, and that they couldn't hear each over each other over the engine, mm. and so they stopped telling stories then. And you can imagine as well, it's a place for old people and young people to talk and share, you know, advice or experience, whatever. And now you have one factory roving around in a field with one man in it, if mm. even you've other just automated kind of systems where it's just this mass-produced economic concern kind of materialist uh, approach to everything and you have the secularization of, of the landscape the disenchantment of the landscape it's where it's just the eye that looks at it views it purely from on economic terms um, and not that i mean that was obviously it had a kind of great importance in, in for our forebears at an economic level but it was also underpinned by all this kind of symbolic uh, traditional information i suppose that has lent itself to a rich store of, of custom and, and tradition not just the story that we describe, but also kind of songs and dances That's true. surrounding the harvest, you know? That would have gone with it. Yeah. I'll put up some links again in, in the description so people can have an idea of where, where to go or what sort of material is out there. Mm. Um, and perhaps it would be a good time to finish with something. A third feet from the archive? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Lovely. This is a, a piece of music in Stacking Norna, just a little stack of bardy, this dance and, and songs to accompany it from a lovely event. Um, that we put on last year in Christchurch Cathedral in Dublin city centre that had the harvest as its theme and focus. So it was all storytelling, kind of singing and music from, taken from the harvest tradition. Um, and this is Emmett Gill playing the Ellen Pipes and Jesse Smith playing the fiddle. And then the Brooks Academy dancers, Jerry and Anna O'Reilly and other dancers whose names escape me, I'm afraid, dancing uh, these traditional dances. This is the end of the night. And at this stage, I was absolutely delighted with myself. It was so, so pleased to it see this kind of thing. Night. Wow, it was beautiful. 
Um, I really, really enjoyed it. But this is this is uh, this kind of final piece of music in Stacking Orna. And then we'll be back next month. And between now and then, yeah, Garland Sunday is almost upon us. The harvest is almost upon us. It's true. So climb to your local hilltop. Gather bilberries. Um, ride naked into the sea on a horse. Do um, when police are not nearby. Ideally. Because we do not want those kind of well claims coming to us, no, Johnny. We don't. And um, but have a wonderful harvest, metaphorically or figuratively, literally. And yes. And, and hope it's successful. In the meantime, we can enjoy the uh, particular fruits of the harvest that manifest here. In this instance, in that of song. But uh, yeah, we shall see you next month. Take care. Come We've just finished with uh, the stacking orn and this little stack of barley. We'll do it um, the modern way and then the old way. <laughs> <laughs>